Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the gift, again, from your, uh, of your word, Lord, that we can uh, open up your scriptures, uh, the words of life, uh, and encounter you as our great God. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd indeed speak to us now through your word as we consider uh, what does it mean to live as Christians in the world today. Uh, Father, in a world that uh, has many facades and uh, d- puts on uh, a show in a lot of ways, uh, Father, may that not be true of us as you examine our own hearts and motives this morning and we, lift, uh, we uh, bring ourselves before you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some things are not as they first appear. Uh, recently, uh, went to uh, early this year, went to the AFL uh, grand final, uh, uh, the parade, and I remember seeing something unusual in the mass of people as I walked through that caught my eye and made me do a double take. Uh, there were two people walking kind of slowly uh, and a little bit odd, and, and it just caught my eye. Uh, but when I looked again... <laughs> I realized they weren't people at all. They were actually two walking robots that were dressed up as people uh, with human skin and it was all uh, made to look very real. And I found out later that they were two robots uh, advertising the movie The Creator, a fictional movie portraying AI robots at war with humanity. Uh, and when I, So what I first saw appeared to be one thing and later, it turned out to be something else entirely. Now, as Christians, uh, as I've already said in some ways, and, and even just prayed earlier, uh, the same can be true of the Christian faith and a person's relationship with God in how what is presented on the surface in our good deeds and what we do and what we present may or may not, in actual fact, be the whole story in terms of what is happening on the inside at a heart level, in terms of our motives behind that which we do. As we can pick up from last week, we see here throughout the whole first 18 verses actually of chapter 6 in Jesus' sermon on the mount that Jesus here examines our good deeds our righteous works. Uh, in times past, the church might have described this uh, portion of Scripture relating to a person's piety. Now, piety is not a word that at least I often hear spoken of today, but it basically means one's religious devotion in a positive sense. And so we saw this whole uh, overarching principle that addresses our motives taught by Jesus in verse 1 that was read. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so last week we explored that first example and the first four verses there, that of charity, of almsgiving to the poor. And this morning I want to come to the second example that Jesus uses here as he examines prayer, the topic of prayer. Our passage contains a much-loved and much-used portion of Scripture uh, for the church. It has the Lord's Prayer in it. Many of us will hold that dear. But as is the case with any familiar part of Scripture, we can easily assume to know what a text teaches 
We can easily kind of write it off and mentally put it in the uh, already know basket. And as such can be the case with a passage like this. We think, ah, well, here is this practical model for prayer. I shall take it, I'll apply it, and I'll be done with it. And let me just say up front, I don't want to discount for a moment that Jesus does give us a model for prayer here. It is a guide, if you like. And Lord willing, uh, tonight in the prayer service, we're going to have a whole uh, hour spent tonight as a community learning from the Master himself and praying the Lord's Prayer uh, together as a community. And so I look forward very much to doing that with you later. But church, this morning as we come to this, these verses, let us not miss the big picture here. The whole context behind uh, this magnificent prayer that Jesus gifts the church. Why does Jesus give it to, to us in the first place? What's the backstory here? Well, it boils down to this. It's the difference between true prayer and false prayer. True and false piety. Now, we've all probably played that game before, haven't we? True or false? Myth or legend? Well, the Lord Jesus himself comes at us with a self-examination, a test here concerning our prayers and the motives that undergird our prayers. Are your prayers genuine? Are they true or false according to God? And so in our passage today, Jesus first addresses false prayer. And what we find is that Jesus does provide us a number of tests, if you like, by which we can identify false prayers as our own lives come under his microscope. And so the first test is this. False prayers tend to be showy in nature he says this in verse 5 and when you pray you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others truly i say to you they have received their reward and so jesus again is examining their deeds of these religious leaders of his day it's not the act himself uh, itself that he's questioning. As Christians, God calls us to be a people of prayer. But it's the motive and the manner in which these Pharisees were praying that troubled Jesus. The synagogue and street corner in those days were central public places where people would get a pretty good view of you. In today's terms, it's equivalent of maybe going to Flinders Street Station or walking in the middle of the MCG with a crowd all around you. Now, on a surface level at first, it actually may seem difficult for us to relate to this in our Western world today. For as a culture, uh, there is a huge difference between today and 2,000 years ago in ancient Israel. In our modern Western world, uh, things are different. Jesus lived in a time and place where prayer itself was actually seen to be pious. A good thing to do in the culture. But what is true in Jesus' day is not so true for us, is it? I mean, hasn't there been talk in recent years for Parliament to remove the Lord's Prayer from its sitting times? Today, if you were to pray out in the open, on a street corner, 
more likely that people would think that you're a little bit strange rather than a good person. I remember going uh, on the bus to school as a younger person and passing a preacher who was preaching on the street corner. And let me tell you, I don't think the kids on that bus were all that positive towards that preacher. But it doesn't mean that the teaching here is not relevant at all to all of us, regardless of where we're at in our faith, whether we are a Christian or not. For again, the principle applies to anything we do and consider good in the eyes of others. Whether it's boasting online about some good cause that we have given to, that we're trying to look good in the eyes of other people, or rubbing in people's faces our new vegan diet, as so many people do. And especially for the Christian, this particular passage is relevant. Not only in helping us discern the genuineness of our faith to begin with, but also guiding us in what God-honoring prayer looks like. As we examine our motives behind our prayers, I mean, which one of us couldn't grow as prayers? And so Jesus addresses showy prayers here. Public prayers before others made in order to look good, to look holy, righteous and pious. These are prayers prayed where people praying, the person praying is more concerned with what the person next to them is thinking rather than being focused on God above. To this Jesus says wisely in verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus here is not banning public prayers or even praying with others one-on-one or in groups. I mean, elsewhere, Scripture encourages, even commands such practices. And actually, in my observation of Christianity in the West, we could grow in leaps and bounds in encouraging and equipping all to be able to pray in front of other people. I feel like the temptation often is more the opposite, to try and keep our prayer a private matter, to never let others know that we're a Christian, to never show our real colors. Nevertheless, the Christian is called to discern balance. We should not be praying publicly to look good, but rather should be satisfied to know that it is God and God alone who we are praying to. A further implication of this is that of the public versus private divide. Are your prayers more fervent when prayed in front of others? If you pray in front of others, that is. Or is it your private prayers dismal when no one else is looking? I think that's a good test to see whether our prayers are genuine. Again, I say this not to discourage praying in groups. For it is an obvious point that we spur one another on, don't we, when we pray together. Once again, balance and discernment is called for here. In addition to showy prayers... Another mark, according to Jesus, of false prayer is found in verse 7, where Jesus warns us against unnecessarily long-winded and wordy prayers. 
And when you pray, says Jesus, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that for their many words, they'll be heard for their many words. Now, again, Jesus is not banning long prayers. I mean, Jesus himself often withdrew from the crowds to spend considerable time in prayer. What did Jesus do in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prayed all night. What does Paul advise us in our own attitude in 1 Corinthians 5? To pray without ceasing. How many Psalms encourage us to basically fight and wrestle with God in prayer as if we're in some sort of wrestling match as we wrestle with him and pour out our hearts? No, but it is unnecessarily long prayers spoken simply for the sake of appearing pious or knowledgeable or that somehow if your prayers are long enough and you pray hard enough, you'll be able to twist God's arm into listening to you. It's the motive behind it all that Jesus is most concerned with here. Sometimes, if I can just speak to the kids in particular for a moment here, that simple one-worded prayer of help in a sticky situation in God's eyes comes with such force and theological truth that it may as well be like a whole encyclopedia that's been written for him, like a loud microphone billowing out into the heavens into God's listening ear. Children, do not despise simple prayers, a simple thanks to God, a simple cry for help, a, think, a, a simple Jesus, I love you prayer. These are precious in God's eyes. I wonder if you, all of us, have ever prayed that simple prayer before. I know I have. The last test you could say concerning false prayers here is, is that you might call uh, mechanical prayers. Such teaching comes from considering verse 7 and 8 together. Rather than praying long-winded prayers, Jesus advises in verse 8, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask, them. ask him. I wonder if you ever faced that danger before, that of mechanical minded prayers what does this look like well it tends to view and treat god like he's some cosmic lottery machine where if you just put in enough prayer coins into the slot eventually you'll hit the jackpot and get what we want we run through our prayer list like we're reading our shopping list or christmas gift wish list and when we're done we just move on it's so transactional there's no relationship at all to it. Again, have your prayer list, but have it with relationship. Taken together, the whole foundation of false prayer is off kilt. At its heart, false prayer comes from a heart that is self-dependent. That doesn't actually admit that it comes from a place of need. Of dependence. Oh, yes, it is offering prayer, a heart like this. It gives the appearance of need, but under the surface, there is no genuine acknowledgement of real need. Rather, such a heart sees prayer primarily as something that it does, something that it accomplishes. Prayer is something that is entirely within its own domain and is completely up to this kind of heart to complete 
and enact and to achieve. I wonder if you've ever seen that in yourself, in your own heart motive in approaching God in prayer. Have you seen any of these dangers in your own prayer life, falling into any of these pitfalls, having a heart that is marked by self-dependency and self-reliance? So over against these false prayers that Jesus is addressing, uh, really at the heart is based on self-dependency. Jesus points us into a better direction. Where, as modelled in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus helps show us what prayer, what true prayer is all about. And what Jesus teaches us here is that true prayer, rather than coming from a heart of self-reliance, springs forth from a heart that is wholly dependent upon God. And this is arguably the whole foundation, is it not? To the Lord's Prayer. Every sentence, every phrase shines forth with this reality, this attitude of dependence. Likewise, Jesus shows us a number of marks then of true prayer. I can't say everything in this morning's time about this prayer, but I'll say a few things. The first mark here we see uh, is, is this it is to have prayers that truly focus on God before ourselves to have prayers that truly reckon with and comes to grip with in some way with the true nature of who we are actually dealing with firstly jesus teaches us to pray our father now we need to actually appreciate how radical those two words alone were in jesus's day the Jews knew that their Old Testament scriptures talked a lot about God and that they could pray to God. But God in the Old Testament is not often described as their father. In fact, the Old Testament only describes God as father in a limited few places. And so the coming of Jesus then fundamentally changed the relational dynamics between God and God's people. To pray to God as Father is meant, us, meant for us to picture God as a warm, relational human parent. One who is approachable, caring, and eager to hear from us. Much better and much more capable than any faulty, flawed, or limited human father that we have. Nevertheless, even though God can be described relationally in this way, as our Father... Nevertheless, he is still God who is in heaven. The God we ought to pray, hallowed be your name to. A phrase that means to consider God as, as holy, to treat him with reverence, like being in the presence of a prime minister or someone uh, who's famous that you just hope to meet one day in person. God then is, we shouldn't see God then as some cosmic lottery machine who we can just conveniently withdraw cash from, like from an ATM, and just carry on our way as if nothing happened. No, this is God, the being who created you, the being who upholds you and the whole universe by his power, the very same being who the Isaiah, uh, prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, uh, he had a vision of God and he was left utterly gobsmacked by this vision. 
He says there, Woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Churchgoer, do you really know who you're dealing with this morning in your prayers? What is your view of God? What does your prayers reveal about what you think of God? Is he like a local convenience store? Or is he the king of the universe to you? Is he your king? The second mark of true prayer of a heart that's dependent upon God is this. It is characterized by being chiefly concerned with God's kingdom as well. Not just God, but God's kingdom and what is his priority. What concerns him most? To pray your kingdom come, your will be done, speaks volumes here. It puts us in our rightful place. Not only does it put ourselves and our own concerns in, it, in their place, at the same time it recognizes the best thing is for God's kingdom to come in its entirety. For the coming of God's kingdom in this sin-stained world means the greatest glory is given to God and the greatest joy is experienced for us. While at the same time recognizing that this world is out of kilter with its creator, full of rebellion and oppression and evil, whereby recognizing the only one cure, there's only one cure that will suffice, for God to bring about full renewal of all things for God's elect. The third mark of true prayer is this, praying with genuine dependence on God for all things. We see this in verse 11 to 13. And really, we can break it up into two parts. First, Jesus encourages us uh, and shows us that God is a God who cares for our physical needs. Give us this day our daily bread. This request, this prayer, comes to the Christian both as a challenge and a comfort. Why is it a comfort? Because in such a simple, delightful way, it shows us that God is a God who cares for us in all ways. providing He is the provider for both body and soul. I wonder if you've ever been reluctant to ask God for things, for physical things, physical needs. We ought not to be hesitant to ask. God is giving us, giving us permission here to come to him. But why is this also a challenge? Well, because once again, it, it involves dependence. Not only in times of plenty, knowing our, world, our Western riches are a gift and not something we earned, but also in times that we are found without, as we remain steadfast in this face of difficulty. Furthermore, it's a challenge for us to remain content with what we have, not to seek extravagance and indulgence. To pray for our daily bread is not the same as praying for another Ferrari. Proverbs 30 verse 8 to 9 I think is so helpful here. Says there, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. 
lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. But in addition to physical needs, true prayer, Jesus shows us, is focused on our spiritual need before God. Being our deep need for forgiveness of sin and deliverance from the powers of evil in this world. Forgiveness for sin here is connected with forgiving others. Now when Jesus says that, is Jesus teaching work-based salvation here? Where it is up to us to forgive so that we might be forgiven? What are we to make of this? What hope do we have, any of us, of this when we all at times struggle to forgive others? Well, it's best to see it connected with what already has been said in verse 12, where Jesus first teaches us to ask for forgiveness. In other words, Jesus is providing another test, another mark of genuine faith. Genuine Christianity and Christians ought to be marked and characterized by a willingness to forgive, to not harbor bitterness and resentment. How hard sometimes it is to pray this prayer. Some also question verse 13 here. Does God tempt us with sin? James 1.13 says, For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. How does that verse marry with our passage today? Well, I think it's helpful for us to recall Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, that uses similar language to verse uh, chapter 6 here, where it shows how the temptation... Temptations we face comes from the devil who is under God's sovereign power. To pray against evil or the evil one recognizes the very real existence of spiritual darkness in this world and to actively depend upon God for deliverance and help. Some Bibles uh, end this prayer with the line, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, Earliest manuscripts favor uh, that not being in the original text. But it's not a bad way of ending a prayer. Again, we have freedom here to pray and make this prayer our own. Friends, where is your heart this morning? What does your prayers reveal about the state of your heart? Do you have a heart that is self-dependent? That is more concerned with what others think of you and rather than being dependent upon God and being focused on Him and Him alone? What then is the cure then to this self-dependent heart? It is to look to Christ and Christ alone for a solid foundation on which to stand in our prayers. It is in faith to realize that it is his prayers for you that are what is so effective in the first place. It is to know and realize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is right now standing at the right hand of God this very minute and interceding for his people. That he is there in heaven, having ascended back to the Father, presenting himself there as the perfect offering for sin. 
having first died on the cross where he atoned for sin, once for all paying for sin in its entirety and then dying for his people in our place. And then rising again to new life in the resurrection, a life that Jesus shares with his people through the indwelt Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is there as our great high priest in heaven interceding for us. So Christian, when you struggle to pray, when you feel that you pray and pray and pray and yet you still feel so inadequate, remember that Jesus is interceding for you. He has taken all your imperfect prayers and impure motives and wash them with his precious blood so that your Father in heaven might hear you. This is a challenge as well, reminding us that even the best of our prayers, the best of our good deeds and righteous deeds remain impure if it was just up to us in God's eyes. Unless it was for Christ who washes them, who cleanses them, and who atones for our many imperfections, seen and unseen. That is both a humbling thought and great comfort for the Christian. One that challenges our self-dependency. But for God to be our Father in the first place, a God who will hear our prayers, Christ must first be our Saviour. Is that true for you this morning? Have you experienced the love of the Saviour for yourself? A love that melts the diamond-hard, self-dependent heart. What is your foundation on which you stand? As the Heidelberg Catechism so wonderfully says in question one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has paid fully for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Churchgoer, can you honestly say that that is true of yourself? Have you renounced all self-sufficiency to be your own saviour? Jesus says in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that uh, you gift us uh, with, firstly, your Son. <laughs> thank you for Jesus and how you are the high priest in heaven interceding for us. The Father, our salvation is not up to us. But Father, you in mercy and in pity look down on our lowly estate and you came to this world. You took on flesh, human flesh, and you achieved on the cross what we could not. 
dying for sins and paying for that penalty. Father, as we come to you in prayer, as we pray and walk and talk with you throughout, not just on Sundays, throughout our week, Lord, we thank you that it is not up to us to be able to pray (laughs) amazing prayers, but what counts is that Jesus is in heaven interceding for us and that our whole foundation is Christ himself. Father, we thank you for the assurance that that brings, that you are a God who hears us through your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be a community that grows in prayer. And we thank you for the gift of prayer that we can commune with you and enjoy life and love from you. Father, I pray for anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, their Savior, I pray that you would convict them and show their need for you. Father, help them see that you offer something that is so beyond this world. That, Father, you give of yourself as the greatest joy of being able to know you as our Father in heaven. And, Father, as we meet later on today, We pray that your spirit would be with us as we pray our prayers to you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.